Hey everybody, welcome to the Ithaca Bound podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology of the Mediterranean basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Michael Galati for a conversation about the Mycenaean period, a period that focuses in on predominantly what would be many parts of modern day Greece, circa 1400 to 1100 BCE. Dr. Galati can better clarify dates as needed. And this civilization, or civilizations, if you will, is considered one of the marquee nexus points of trade during the Bronze Age in the Eastern Mediterranean. So held a lot of significance then, and still today holds a lot of significance to scholars. Dr. Galati is Professor of Anthropology and Classical Studies at the University of Michigan. He's also the director of the Museum of Anthropological Archaeology, and he's the author of the monograph, Light and Shadow, Isolation and Interaction in the Shala Valley of Northern Albania, a book that serves as a review of a study that he conducted with a team on an isolated tribe in the mountains of Northern Albania. Sounds fascinating. So if we have some time near the end of the conversation, I'll probably ask if Dr. Galati could share more about his experiences during that study. Welcome to the call, Mike. Thanks very much for having me, Andrew. Glad to be here. Okay, so let's start with context a bit. What was the Mycenaean period? And why did anthropologists and historians believe that this particular epoch warranted giving its own neologism? So the Mycenaeans were a, a people, um, as it turns out, a Greek people who um, lived primarily on the mainland of Greece. Um, and uh, they're, they're famous and very well known for the, um, the site of Mycenae, which mm-hmm. is in the Argolid. Um, and this was one of their, um, their strongholds um, uh, with large walls. It was a citadel site. Um, uh, but there were also um, Mycenaean sites all over southern Greece um, in, in places like Messenia, where I worked. Mm. Um, and uh, the Mycenaeans produced um, a culture in the late Bronze Age um, uh, centered on palaces, so-called palace buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there are several of these known, one at Mycenae, one at uh, Pylos in Messenia uh, in southwest Greece, um, others at uh, places like Thebes, um, Tiryns. Um, and these buildings were um, the center of, uh, of, uh, of economies and political systems. Um, and, um, you know, um, the, the other really important thing discovered at some of these palaces um, were written uh, text tablets um, mm-hmm. formed out of clay. Um, and uh, the folks operating out of these palaces wrote on these, these tablets. And they're mostly economic records. Um, but what's especially important about them is... Um, uh, it, as it turns out, they're written in Greek. Um, so we really can say that, that these are, um, these are seemingly the, the first Greeks. Um, and, uh, they became especially interesting, um, or scholars became even more interested in the Mycenaeans because it became clear that they were the people that were being remembered and written about in the Iliad. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when mm-hmm. Homer was talking about the Greeks and writing about the Trojan war, what he had in mind was some kind of memory of these peoples who were centered on these palaces um, with their, their kings and their royalty um, and their pension for warfare. Um, and, uh, and so um, uh, the Mycenaeans held this really important 
um, role uh, in in classical Greek society and then later Roman Greeks uh, Roman society um, mm. because of their experience of, of the, the works of Homer even though they wouldn't have called them the Mycenaeans that as you point out that's a neologism that that yeah. we use based on excavations yeah. at the site yeah I further down I jotted some some questions and and way way down I said so how does the Trojan War fit into this? But you got to, <laughs> you got, you got to it right away. <laughs> right off the hop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so, so this is the significance about this period uh, is the fact that there's, is it for the first time there's, there's uh, palaces of this nature in the region, there's tablets, so there's a form of communication. What about this? particular time made it uh, very marked? Yeah, so that, that's a very good question. Um, and uh, these states, these Mycenaean mm. uh, polities, um, we think were state-level um, systems. Um, so they had um, forms of government and economy um, and, uh, you know, forms of um, of control over people that that approximate what we experience in today's world. So the tablets tell us that there was a system of taxation, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, so um, so that makes these the first and the earliest state level societies on the European mainland. Um, prior to them, we have the Minoans on Crete. Um, that's an island society. Mm -hmm. But these are the first um, uh, states that form kind of independently on the European mainland. So theoretically, anyway, um, you could make the case that they're ancestral to all of the later nation states of Europe. So they, they really sit at kind of the foundations of European civilization. Um, and, uh, and of course, mm -hmm. they, the, the, the classical city states of, of Greece that are so, you know, well known for democracy and the Olympics and things like that are heir, heir to these, these Mycenaean states. Um, so that makes them kind of in historical terms very, very important. Um, understanding how they, they functioned and how people lived in these societies is, is therefore historically and archaeologically important. Was it Attic, Greek, on the tablets? Um, that's a very good question. So, mm -hmm. um, so if I recall, um, it, it's either Attic or Doric. I'm not a linear okay. B specialist. Um, yeah. uh, but Neither what is, <laughs> yeah, okay, well, it, it, there's a, only a handful of people in the world who are specialists in this kind of, uh, philology, mm -hmm. but, but what's, what was frankly surprising, um, to early scholars is that it was Greek, um, the Minoans, on the mm. other hand, were also writing a, a form of linear uh, writing on clay tablets that seems to be non-Greek. Um, so it was a bit of a surprise when it turned out to be Greek. Um, and, uh, hmm. and, and so that gives us kind of a, um, an origin point for the Greeks um, back in the Mycenaean period. Now, they probably arrived earlier than that, of course, but, um, but it, 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 it pin, pinpoints the Greeks in Greece at least as early as, as you pointed out, about 1200 BC. Mm -hmm. What do we know about the origins of these people, if anything? Do we have any evidence about where they may have come from, or is this for quite some time considered a pretty indigenous people? <laughs> 
So that's that's a very difficult question to answer, mm-hmm. and we are getting some insights into that uh, that you know some answers to that question from ancient DNA analyses. Um, mm. We didn't have access to this kind of of DNA evidence um, prior to you know a couple of decades ago, um, but uh, um, you know so it had always there there have always been stories about the coming of the Greeks right that the Greeks arrived in Greece at some point having migrated there mm-hmm. um and you know this is the so-called Doric invasion of, of of the Greeks um but it was never quite clear when that may have happened so some scholars thought mm-hmm. it might have been as early as like 3000 BC mm-hmm. um it might have been quite late um around the time of the Mycenaean states but somewhere in there during the Bronze Age during that long period of several thousand years the Greeks arrived Um, we do know that there were people already living in Greece prior to the arrival of the Greeks whenever that happened Um, there are references made to people like the Pelasgians um, who who were who were there um, before the Greeks and spoken on Greek language Um, like I mentioned um, the Minoans living on Crete were non-Greek speakers who were you know, who were probably living there uh, on Crete from the get-go. Um, and, uh, you know, so the Greeks would have infiltrated or arrived in a landscape where people were already present um, and then kind of extended, um, you know, uh, their their, um, their culture and language over the rest of, of Greece. Um, mm-hmm. There's also some evidence that's artifactual from places like Mycenae that there were strong connections on the part of the Greeks outside of Greece, um, uh, also to the north, so into the Balkans. So it may have been that the Greeks arrived coming from from the north or from, um, you know, um, from out of the Balkans or even out of kind of this, the steppe zone and they, they mm-hmm. came into, into Greece. Um, the DNA uh, uh, evidence does seem to show, um, you know, some connections to places like Anatolia um, and, and outside of Greece. But... Um, but it still is relatively um, ambivalent in terms of, of pinpointing, um, mm-hmm. you know, when the Greeks would have arrived and where they would have come from. So it's not the silver bullet we would like. But there are hints that that people, um, say, buried at Mycenae um, were not necessarily local um, to the region. Um, so mm-hmm. so that the Greeks would have come from somewhere else, we don't know where, and arrived at some point, we don't know exactly when. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, but... Uh, so there's different, um, I don't know if we can call it communities, Mycenae, Pylos, uh, Thebes, etc. That that you referenced. Do we know anything about how government would have worked interrelationally amongst these different communities? That's that's a really interesting question. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some of my colleagues who have begun to talk more seriously about some kind of a pan Mycenaean kingdom, mm-hmm. um, which would approximate what is described in in, in Homer, um, where there was kind of a, a high king who, you know, um, who kind of would have uh, would have had some control over the other kings at the other um, palace states. Um, I'm of the opinion that these these different um, these different Mycenaean states, these different um, communities, would have been relatively independent of mm-hmm. one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the reason I say that is because the archaeology looks slightly different at each of these places. Um, Mycenae is not exactly like um, Pylos; is not exactly okay. like um, uh, any of the other places. Um, 
the writing systems when we look at them are very similar which okay. also leads to a you know a suspicion that they're in contact with one another and sharing these writing systems but again there are differences that that make them um, quite different from each other in some ways um, but but you also they're also pretty well kind of bounded encapsulated um, little entities um, you know these these kind of small these small state entities that um, that seem to have operated relatively independently from one another. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean, though, that at certain times they might not have cooperated, um, mm -hmm. like we see in the Alien, where they come come together to go fight the, mm -hmm. the Trojan War. Um, uh, you know, under the leadership of people like Agamemnon and others, but um, uh, but we don't have good evidence for that. Um, we don't have kind of historical evidence uh, to support that okay. kind of thing. So these. Uh, palaces can can you describe them a bit for for those sure. listening what are we what are we talking about when we talk about a palace and and then corresponding to that what would the uh community around it be like like was it more agricultural or was it more dense um with different um uh, architectural buildings etc yeah so um so like I said, there are some differences. The the mm -hmm. citadel at Mycenae itself is is up on top of a rocky hill. Mm -hmm. um, it's surrounded by by very large walls, um, and there was a gate to enter um, the citadel proper that's called the Lion Gate. Yeah. Um, with a, a beautiful image of a carved um, uh, rampant lion. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, so, um, so the the palace at Mycenae um, is a little more difficult to reconstruct. Um, what it actually looked like. But the example at Pylos, which is not a citadel site the way Mycenae is, and doesn't, it probably had walls, but those walls no longer remain. Um, but that palace was excavated in, in its entirety in the 1930s by a, an archaeologist named Carl Blagan. Um, and it um, has been, because it was fully excavated, has been well reconstructed. It was built out of mud brick. Um, it probably was two stories. Mm -hmm. um, and at the center of these palaces was a unit, an architectural unit called a Megaron. Um, okay. And this was a tripartite unit where you had um, kind of an entryway and then a vestibule or a kind of a waiting room. Mm -hmm. And then at the, at, the, at the center of the Megaron, at the center of the palace, was a throne room. Um, and so it would have been a, a roughly square um, room, mm -hmm. probably, you know, in the neighborhood of kind of 10 meters by 10 meters. Um, so big, but not gigantic. Mm -hmm. um, at the center of it, um, at Pylos, um, and kind of in general in these, in these uh, throne rooms, there was a large hearth um, where a, a large fire would have burned. Um, and where um, the king and his, his attendants would have probably uh, cooked meat, uh, cooked meals. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, um, there was also a throne um, where the Mycenaean king would have sat. Um, and uh, so, uh, so this, this, this building itself, but also this throne room, would have been well decorated with frescoes, um, paintings of kind of Mycenaean life. Um, at Pylos, the themes mm -hmm. are, are relatively warlike, so images of sailing ships and uh, men-at-arms, um, and then there's also some religious iconography, sacrifices of, of animals and things like that. Um, and uh, um, 
you know, so you, you have to imagine that as you entered this building, there would have been a roaring fire and these uh, these uh, martial images mm-hmm. painted onto the walls and then the king sitting on this throne. Um, and we do know um, that the, the Mycenaean Greek word used to refer to the king was wanax. Um, and um, and that's a word that continued into classical Greek, but but kind of dropped out of, of the lexicon. It was kind of an ar- archaism um, that's not actually used in Homer. Um, where the, the king is referred to as a Basileus. Um, but in, in Mycenaean Greek, this was the Wanox. Um, and he probably um, had a military role, but also had a religious role um, in Mycenaean society as well. Um, so these palaces would have been hmm. centers of, 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 of uh, religion, um, but also they were centers of economy. So we have those linear V tablets that detail what would have been kind of coming into the palace and going out. Like I said, there was a system of taxation. So um, Mm -hmm. secondary sites in the vicinity of the palace would have sent goods um, and and provided services to the palace. Um, So things like um, animals, wool, flax, um, honey, spices, um, uh, you know, um, uh, they have the facility to make perfumed oils, they would have had, um, there would have been bronze working, although bronze was imported from the outside of Greece, but they worked bronze. Um, they built chariots. Um, uh, they worked furniture. And all of this is recorded in the Linear B tablets. So you asked, you know, what these palaces would have been like in the mm-hmm. surrounding hinterland. They would have been kind of bustling centers of activity. Um, uh, and a lot of the activity would have been economic in nature. Um, mm-hmm. And so things were coming in and then finished products were going out. Um, and they would have been surrounded by some kind of a lower town. Um, you know, they, I, it's a stretch to call them cities. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the palace at Pylos and then the surrounding lower town is something on the neighborhood of like 20, 20 to 30 hectares. Um, which in archaeological terms is big, but it's not huge. Um, And uh, Mycenae would have been somewhere on the same scale, you know, somewhere in the the tens of hectares versus the hundreds of hectares. Um, Our big problem is a lot of these lower towns that surrounded where the kind of the the common folk would have lived, um, they haven't been well excavated. Um, So there's been a project um, Hmm. operated by my colleague Jack Davis at Pelos, where they've been investigating the lower town um, of Pelos. Um, that hasn't that information hasn't been published yet. The lower town at Mycenae has been investigated, but um, but but hasn't really been identified. Um, mm-hmm. So we don't know what what it would have been like for the common folk living kind of around these these Mycenaean centers. Um, uh, we know a lot more about what life in the palace would have been like, um, and. Um, it would have been relatively opulent. So, um, you know, so one of the one of the first artifacts that Blagan found when he excavated at Pelos was a big ceramic bathtub. So, um, you know, in the uh, in the in the Iliad, when Telemachus shows up at Pelos and he's he's welcomed by wise King Nestor, the first thing he's offered is a bath, a hot bath. Um, so it was it was exciting to Blake and I'm sure when the first thing one of the first things he found was was a big bathtub so um, um, so they 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 lived they lived uh, they lived fairly good lives it seems like in these in these palaces mm-hmm. okay so you describe that in some ways the palaces are similar um, in some ways 
do we have evidence that there was ongoing trade amongst these different communities and then outside of that region do we have any evidence of i know i know there at the time it's not the sovereign states that we know now but but internationally if i can use that word do we do we have any evidence that there was international trade so trade amongst these particular communities with other communities let's say in crete or egypt or the levant area yeah, there's there's a lot of evidence for that kind of trade. Um, it varies a little bit from state to state. So mm-hmm. Mycenae appears to have very um, had very strong connections with Egypt, for instance. Mm. Um, so a fair number of Egyptian artifacts are found in excavations at Mycenae. Things like scarabs, um, they seem to have been bringing in scarabs. Um, faience, um, you know, the, the Mycenaeans would have made their own glass as well, but some was imported. Um, and so, um, so there's, there certainly seems to have been international trade. Some of that trade might have been funneled through the Minoan Crete, uh, through Minoan Crete, mm-hmm. the part of the, the Minoans. Um, the Minoans are actually named in Egyptian. Um, okay. they, they're kind of a, um, they're an identified people in Egyptian tablets. Um, and uh, um, the Mycenaeans are not, but um, uh, so so we know that the, Minoan, the, the Minoans were in Egypt. Um, we don't know for sure that the Mycenaeans were, but they may well have been through the Minoans or directly on their own. Um, so we don't know exactly kind of the nature of that trade, whether it was direct or whether it was, you know, kind of at a distance down the line. Mm-hmm. The Mycenaeans were probably um, supplying, we're almost certainly supplying things like perfumed oil. Um, to the Egyptians. Um, a fair amount of, of Mycenaean pottery shows up in Egypt um, mm-hmm. and Minoan pottery as well. Um, and the pottery may have been there for the pottery's sake as you know they were importing the pottery because they liked the pottery. But some of it was also certainly carrying things um, that the Egyptians wanted, like perfumed oil. Um, uh, a lot of that trade does seem to center um, at Mycenae and come from Mycenae. The Pelians, for their part, seem to have been less engaged in that kind of international trade, um, at least with the Eastern Mediterranean, um, with Egypt and the Levant. That may be because they're situated on the Adriatic coast. Um, you know, the, the, they're they're on, they're on the Ionian Sea versus the Aegean Sea, um, and so a lot of the trade with Pylos may have been directed at places like Italy or up the coast um, towards Albania, where I also work. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but there was a, there was a thriving kind of um, international network of trade and foreign relations that um, that tied the um, Eastern Mediterranean together during the Bronze Age. Uh, my colleague uh, Eric Klein has written a lot about this this mm. world, um, and um, so we we have um, you know the there was a lot more writing taking place in the Levant and in Egypt than we find in, in Greece. But in in the writing on the part of the Hittites, for in, for instance, there's clearly there's um, foreign relations in the form of letters going back and forth, um, trade negotiations taking place. Um, uh, treaties that are being signed, peace treaties. Um, uh, there's mm. there's warfare, um, so you can see where this kind of Trojan War mythology, it, where it would have sprung up in the in the context of this kind of international world of the Eastern Mediterranean. Mm. Um, 
So the Hittites were, they did have a word, we think, for the Mycenaeans, the Ahiawa. Um, and so they were referring to the, the Achaeans, um, the, the Mycenaeans, mm-hmm. um, whereas the, the um, other peoples didn't necessarily, but the Hittites did, and they seem to have been at odds. Um, so... Okay, yeah, and the Hittites, and to put a uh, geography around, the Hittites would be more present-day Turkey, right? Yeah, Anatolia, correct. Yeah, uh-huh. Anatolia. Yep. Okay. Um, what do we know about the actual names of any kings or queens in this um, period? Like, uh, Agamemnon is a very popular one from the, the Iliad. Is, do we have any evidence that uh, he ex- he existed? So the evidence for the actual veracity of the Trojan War um, is is mixed, right? Mm-hmm. We, so we'd love to find um, a, a tablet written in Mycenaean Linear B that that references the Trojan War. Um, yeah. We don't have that. Um, you know, so it's not, it's not like, uh, you know, the Epic of Gilgamesh where we have, you know, Cuneiform tablets that that describe um, the uh, um, you know the Epic of Gilgamesh or you know Noah's flood or things like that. So we don't have that kind of historical writing emanating from Greece. Um, what what we do have though in the Linear B tablets um, is we do have references to Greek deities. Um, so some of the the ones you would expect are there in the Linear B. So Poseidon um, is there. Um, uh, um, I, th- I think there's references to Zeus. Mm-hmm. Um, there's um, uh, references to Athena. Um, mm-hmm. And the reason there's references is even though these are economic documents, a lot of the goods that are being collected, um, you know, economically go to religious festivals. So it'll say, you know, we're collecting, you know, X amount of um, foodstuffs, um, you know, fattened pigs for um, the festival for Poseidon. Um, And uh, so we have the linear B names of these gods. So the reason that's interesting is, of course, they carry on into classical Greece and then appear in um, Homer's Iliad. So there is this kind of direct connection between Mycenaean culture, as we understand it archaeologically and through the linear B tablets with the later Homeric epics. So Hmm. when Homer wrote those epics, he knew something about about the uh, um, about these Mycenaean societies, these Bronze Age societies, he wasn't just kind of retrodicting or kind of extending what he knew about his own time just straight back into the past. Mm-hmm. Um, he probably literally had some kind of cultural memory, or the Greeks possessed a cultural memory of of these uh, um, of these societies. Now we do get some anachronisms. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he talks about iron weapons. Um, the Greeks, uh, the Mycenaean Greeks, didn't use iron at that point. Um, uh, he talks about certain aspects of of Greek Mycenaean Greek political systems. Like I mentioned, mm-hmm. um, you know, he he doesn't refer to the Wanox, even though we know that's what they called their kings. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so um, so he got some things wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so so really, the world he's describing in in the in the epics. Um, are kind of a, a, an Iron Age world that he was familiar mm-hmm. with, that he's extending back to and connecting to these Mycenaean societies. Um, so there may well have been mm-hmm. a conflict that we now call the Trojan War 
Um, and Homer may have had some kind of direct memory of, or, the, or, or you know, the Greeks at that point had some direct memory of these conflicts. Um, but that doesn't mean that that war actually happened during the Bronze Age and involved Mycenaean peoples. Um, he could have kind of been mixing up his his historical periods mm -hmm. together um, to make a good story. Um, mm -hmm. We do actually know some of the names of Mycenaean kings from the Linear B tablets. Um, uh, I can't think of their names off the top of my mm -hmm. head, but mm -hmm. but they're not. They don't connect with ones that are in um, yeah. in, in the in the uh, Homeric epics, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, Although there are certainly names in Homer that we do find in Linear B, but it's it's not like they're saying King Agamemnon or mm -hmm. or Achilles or, or things like that. Um, mm -hmm. So we don't have that kind of connection. Mm -hmm. um, but there's enough there to make it you know pretty interesting for Homeric scholars to look at Mycenaean Greek archaeology and yeah. kind of imagine that world. Yeah, um, absolutely. The um, does the period so so. Uh, civilization continued, obviously, but do scholars consider the period itself to have ended at some point? And if so, what were the factors that are considered to have caused the period to end? Yeah, so the Mycenaean palaces were all destroyed roughly about the same time. Mm. Um, you know, it's about 1200 BC, um, and then we get kind of a sudden Mycenaean period that runs down to 11. BC. So you get kind of the echoes of this society, but but most of the palaces were were destroyed. They were burnt um, sometime around 1200 BC, uh -huh. um, give or take. Um, some were some were kind of rebuilt, like the palace at Tiryns. Mm -hmm. um, there's a there's a, a, a kind of a rebuilding phase that takes place. But by about 1100 BC, Mycenaean society civilization had come to an end. Um, they're not writing Linear B anymore, so there's no more writing that takes place. Um, and uh, um, uh, there, there seems to have been a, f a fair degree of depopulation. So um, population in Messenia around Pylos mm -hmm. um, drops precipitously, you know, by like 90%. Um, mm -hmm. so, um, so in the early Iron Age, we have very, very few sites, um, very, very little evidence of people living there. Um, so there is a, a span of a few hundred years where um, depopulation takes place. And this is the period that's sometimes referred to as the Greek Dark Age. Uh, there's no writing, so it's dark. But it's also dark because um, Mycenaean civilization comes to an end and depopulation occurs. Um, we don't know the cause of this this collapse. Hmm. Um, we don't know what brought the Mycenaean palaces to an end. We don't know what brought Mycenaean civilization to an end. Um, there's been lots of theories and speculation. Um, uh, one possibility is there were there were migrations, invasions that took place, possibly from the west, from places like Italy, possibly from the north, from the Balkans. Um, there are references in the eastern Mediterranean where they also experienced a collapse in depopulation, not as not as profound as what happened in Greece, but but certainly, it, you know, they also experienced disruption during this period. Mm -hmm. There are references to the so-called sea peoples. These are peoples who who, are, who come by the sea, um, who have kind of a you know, they, they seem kind of piratical, um, you know, they seem to have been a mixture of different kinds of peoples. Mm -hmm. So we get good descriptions, um, uh, you know, um, 
in Egypt on the part of Ramses, you know, describing battles with the Sea Peoples, and they, they, um, you know, they they were kind of a ragtag navy. Um, uh, there are references made to people like the Sickles, who would have come from Sicily, um, to other peoples coming from other places, um, and it may have included uh, Mycenaean Greeks, who who kind of were driven out of Greece and joined up with the Sea Peoples. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of these folks may have been uh, the origin of, of, of peoples like the Philistines um, in the Levant, who settled about this time on the on the coast mm-hmm. of, of places like Israel and Gaza, um, and and are the Philistines of the Bible. Um, and there's pretty good evidence, archaeologically and growing DNA evidence that that these folks may well have have come fleeing Mycenaean Greece. Um, certainly there were population of Mycenaean Greeks who ended up in Cyprus, um, uh, probably literally f- fleeing the destruction of, of the palaces. Some of these mm-hmm. folks may mm-hmm. have headed north um, to places like the Ionian Islands, places you're familiar with, um, like uh, mm-hmm. like Ithaca, like Kefalonia, um, where, mm-hmm. where they may have received kind of refugee populations coming from places like Pylos. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know the the archaeological evidence for a lot of this isn't isn't hard and fast, um, you know. But but certainly there was a collapse, um, and these palaces were burned. There may have been um, earthquakes at this time, earthquake storms. Mm-hmm. Some of them mm-hmm. may have been impacted by earthquakes. Um, there may have been internal uprisings. It may have been that people. You know those common people we were talking about that we don't know a lot about may have risen mm-hmm. up and said, "You know, we're we're done with this this palace system," um, and they may, mm-hmm. may have burned the palaces. Um, quite likely, it's a combination of all of these. It may have been kind of the perfect storm where um, where all of these things were kind of happening at once and affecting the whole of the of the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, but the Greeks, uh, the the Mycenaean Greeks, seem to have fallen the hardest and the farthest um, mm-hmm. compared to the rest. Mm-hmm. This has been a great chat, Mike. Can you share a little bit? Um, so, so your book, Light and Shadow, Isolation and Interaction in the Shala Valley of Northern Albania, why that somewhat gripped my attention when I came across it is you did pretty substantial field work in, in the mountains in Albania. Can you, can you tell us about what that project was like? And then also, um, uh, and, and I peppered you beforehand and you were comfortable with this. If, if natural, can you weave in uh, the story about uh, your familial ties to Lefkada, the island of Lefkada in Greece? Yeah, so, um, so, so I did my dissertation work in Greece looking at the Mycenaeans and specifically around Pylos. Um, and about that time is when the Iron Curtain was falling all over Europe. Um, so beginning in 1989, um, you know, and um, Albania was, as, as, as some of your listeners will know, was was a closed society. Um, it was a it was a communist government run by a totalitarian dictator named Enver Hoxha, who actually died in the eighties. But um, but it remained pretty tightly sealed until the rest of Eastern Europe started to open up. So the last of the Eastern European nations um, under communism to open was Albania, and that happened about the time I was. Uh, of working on and finishing up my dissertation. So I made an initial first trip um, to Albania in 1995 when things were still pretty rough there. Um, They emerged from communism, kind of a very much kind of a third world country, um, having been cut off completely from the world and from Europe for for 50, 60 years. So um, 
so I started working in Albania in addition to Greece, which was great because working in Greece is, is difficult to the extent that um, that there's a lot of people who work in Greece and you have to have very strict permitting to work in Greece. Um, and uh, in, in Albania, was a little more, I was a little more free to kind of work there as an archaeologist. Um, so I spent a long time working in central Albania at a site called Apollonia, which is actually a Greek a classical Greek colony. But I became really fascinated with these these so-called tribal cultures that um, that held on in the high mountains of Albania, the so-called accursed mountains, um, hmm. uh, where there were um, populations, you know, upwards of of ten to twenty different tribal groups that were extant in, in these mountains, which are very remote. Um, uh, were, were you know, when I first went there, were pretty difficult to get to. Um, it's it's gotten easier to get to these mountains mm-hmm. now because uh, there's a thriving ecotourism mm-hmm. um, industry now, where people go up there to to backpack. And um, but they've they've always been kind of um, remote, kind of lawless, kind of cut off um, from the rest of Europe, cut off from the rest of Albania. Um, mm-hmm. And so I first went there, um, kind of interested in this this remnant tribal culture. Um, and I went to um, a tribal territory of, of the Shala people, um, and uh, and we decided, uh, my colleagues and I decided to run an archaeological project there, um, focused on these these tribal groups and looking at their origins and where they came from and when they formed, <clears throat> um, and uh, and that that the the results of that project are reported in in the book you you referenced, Light and Shadow. Mm-hmm. Um, we also found really good evidence for. Um, we actually found a big Iron Age, uh, Bronze Age to Iron Age site there, hmm. um, so which was built uh, right about the time the Mycenaeans were collapsing, actually, um, hmm. and uh, and that that was also another wrinkle we didn't expect. That was so we conducted excavations at this hill fort um, in Inshallah um, for several years, um, but the the project we ran was archaeological, but also there was a strong ethnographic an ethno-historic component to it. Um, so uh, we did a lot of interviews with tribal elders um, about their experience of, of, of this, this tribal culture. Um, and uh, we did a lot of archival historical work. Um, uh, they're Catholic. Um, this particular tribe is Catholic. So we, mm-hmm. uh, we did some work in the, the archives, secret archives of the Vatican. Uh, we did some work uh, in Istanbul at the at the Ottoman archives, um, and we were able wow. to build up this really interesting picture of what it was like um, living in these tribal cultures, um, which formed sometime in the late medieval period, mm-hmm. about the time of the Ottoman invasion. Um, so yeah. uh, a lot of these folks would have kind of fled the Ottoman invasion up into the mountains mm-hmm. and formed these kind of um, mm-hmm. these uh, these refugee populations. Um, so really interesting culture. They had an oral customary law code called the the Kanun of Lektukajini, which mm-hmm. would would have been, uh, which would have kind of um, uh, would have um, would have dictated tribal life. Um, that wasn't written down until the 1930s um, mm-hmm. in Albanian, um, and then. Uh, you know, so you can get it now and read it in English. It runs to something like 300 pages. But the tribal elders would have had this tribal law code memorized, um, and so they were a feuding culture. So there were there were until very recently, even down to the present day, there are uh, active blood feuds, um, uh, which doesn't affect the ecotourism at all. But um, mm-hmm. nevertheless, there's there's still uh, the remnants of tribal feuds. Um, and uh, they still elect a, a tribal chief um, and have a tribal council. 
um, at these in these different tribal populations. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. a really interesting place. Yeah, uh, really as, fascinating. As I had mentioned uh, to you, my 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 heart my heart warmed when I when I when I saw you had done work in Albania because one of my best friends is uh, who lives on the island of Ithaca uh, is yeah. from from Albania. So he grew up in uh, grew up in Albania. He did his customary conscription in the army and and, yeah. now, and now he's living with his family on the island of Ithaca. Yeah, and the, the amazing thing about that part of the world, the Ionian Islands, is, mm-hmm. um, you know, prior to the present day and up to the present day, obviously, mm-hmm. people were moving back and forth between Albania, Greece, these islands. I mean, the Ionian, Ionian Islands were an independent, you know, statelet, um, you know, past Greek independence. Uh, you know, they were a British protectorate. So this this whole world was just a, a melting pot. And so when I first started going there, I was able to connect my own family history, which is Greek, um, mm-hmm. to this part of the world. Um, and uh, and through a lot of kind of genealogical and some archival work um, mm-hmm. there, I was able to find my family roots on the island of Lefkada. Um, a couple mm-hmm. of years ago, I went to the archives at Lefkada um, where they have a, they have a great archive with fantastic archivists who work there, um, and I, I literally walked in the door and told them my last name and said, <laughs> "Supposedly my great great grandfather's from here, but I don't know where to start." Yeah, and I told them my name Galati, which is Greek, and they said, "That's that's a weird name, so that helps. We can you know we can yeah, more easily there. find weird names." Um, and uh, you know they they managed to find his his baptismal record. It was kind of like finding a needle in a haystack. So. We kind of all were there pouring over these these church documents and these, wow. these archival documents. And finally, one of them said, I found it. I found it. Your great grandfather's baptism, you know. And, wow. um, and so I was able to find the church where he was baptized. And uh, there were there were no real ancestors left there. Most people had kind of moved away to, to other places. But um, uh, but it, but I was able to I was able to find the church where where they had they had worshipped and. It was it was it was pretty awesome. Um, wow! Yeah, so. it sounds very special, especially if you're able to get that kind of documentation. That would, it was actually still still available. Still there, still there. That's yeah. incredible. This has been an excellent conversation, Mike. I appreciate you joining the call today. Absolutely, I really enjoyed it, Andrew. And uh, you know, good luck with with all of your projects and uh, you. and, and everything. So thank you for having me. Thanks, Mike. What a delightful conversation that was. If you wish to pick up Dr. Galati's monograph, Light and Shadow, Isolation and Interaction in the Shallow Valley of Northern Albania, I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the associated subpage at ithacabound.com. If you enjoyed the episode today, please subscribe to the podcast. Mike and everyone listening, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now.